But it is uh, wonderful to be here. I bring you greetings from the saints at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento. We're glad, obviously have strong ties through the Twombly's and glad to be among you and to be with you. Glad to consider your Pastor Jeremy as a friend and brother in ministry and glad to be able to minister to you. A, a member asked the other night at prayer meeting, what are you speaking on up in Reading? And I just said, my wife actually said, God. And they laughed. Um, But it's interesting how in the Christian life and even in ministry in the church, we will talk about many things, important things, necessary things, biblical things, and how little we will contemplate and consider the being and grandeur of God. And so my great prayer and hope and ambition this weekend with you, by God's help and the help of the Spirit from His Word, is to expand as we sang that ancient hymn, Be Thou My Vision, Expand Your Vision of God according to His Word. And we pray with His help that will be what we accomplish. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can turn to our first text this weekend in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. I want to look at verses 14 and 15 together in Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15. There it is written, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the Word of God. Uh, Let me pray a prayer of illumination and ask for the help of the Spirit as we consider His Word together. Our Father, we pray that as we have gathered by Your grace safely here at this camp, that You would, by Your same Spirit who is with each one of Your children, open our eyes further to behold Your wonders and glories in Your Word. We pray You would be with all of us who hear to truly see with the eyes of faith enlightened by You, And we pray for the one who expounds your word, that with clarity, boldness, and care, he might make known what you have revealed therein. We ask our Father, you would be honored and glorified as we worship and contemplate you according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When my eldest daughter, Miriam, whom I just introduced, was a baby, I would pick her up and say, I love you so much. And she just caught the last end of that sentence, much. And so as she grew as a toddler, she would often toddle up to me and say, much, much, daddy. And that was her way of saying, she loved me. She would give me hugs and say, much, much. Now, I never stopped her and sat her down and said, Miriam, much is a pronoun or an adverb and you are not using it properly. (laughs) My little girl was giving a true expression of love. She was doing so as it was consistent, her mental development as a toddler. But as she grew and has learned, she came to realize that much is not actually a synonym for love in English. So she learned to speak more consistently and properly, though no less truly, when she just says now, Dad, simply, I love you. And the same is true with Christians as we grow to learn about God. When we are young or immature Christians, we speak, pray, or think about God in various sincere ways that are not proper or consistent. And is that wrong? Absolutely not. It's sincere communion with God. It's our genuine communion with Him, and our God is not less loving than a human father. 
But if we're going to grow and testify of Him rightly, if we are going to stand in the midst of the shifting waves of our culture in a steadfast faith of this rebellious world, we must learn to think and speak consistently and coherently about God. And we want to think as He's revealed Himself. And that's exactly what Moses and Israel needed as well. At this point in redemptive history, they needed a consistent, coherent vision of the true God. Moses here in Exodus 3 is at Mount Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. It's foreshadowing here the giving of the covenant that will come after the Exodus, the Ten Commandments, when Israel will be brought to this same mountain to worship God and serve Him at this mountain. God's people are going to be brought out of slavery and bondage into the freedom of worship. But there's a big question before this event. Who is going to accomplish redemption and who are we going to worship? And God answers these questions beforehand by revealing Himself as the God who is. In verses 14 and 15 here, what we just read, God says, I am who I am. I am the Lord or Yahweh, which is a play on I am. The God of your fathers. And where he starts is just as significant as each of these names. And before God says who he is, he begins with the most significant and most basic fact about God. He is. By revealing himself as the one who is, God means for us to consider his basic perfections that are foundational to anything we would ever think or speak or consider about God. And what I want to do this evening from these verses is consider four perfections of God that are revealed here and that are given as foundational to all we think or consider about God. And they'll all conveniently start with I. We'll think of God as incomprehensible, independent, irreducible, and imminent. Let's consider first here the God who is as God who is incomprehensible. God says in verse 14, first, I am who I am. I am sent me. Now you might have a footnote here if you're reading from the ESV and it says you could also translate this, I am what I am or I will be what I will be. But I am who I am is the best rendering and we don't need to puzzle over the ambiguities of Hebrew grammar this evening. And either either way you render it, what God is doing is specifying a subject, I am, and giving the same as a predicate, I am. It's mysterious and circular. It forces attention back on the subject. God is. Can you comprehend that? No, we can't. God is incomprehensible. Now, that's not the same thing as saying God is unknowable. God, or that we cannot comprehend Him. We certainly can. We can, we can but we cannot contain Him in our minds. You can go out here to one of these trees and you can put your hand on it and truly feel real bark, but you can't get your arms around the whole tree. You cannot contain or comprehend the tree or God. You may have been coming to this camp your whole life and, or if someone who works here, and they might say, I know every inch of this camp. But the only reason that's possible is because there are boundaries. There are limits to where Mountain Meadow Bible Camp ends. But if God is, that means God is prior to all created boundaries or time. 
He has no descriptor, limit, or definable extent to where you can stand back and look back at the extent of God and say, that's it, that's all of Him, and try to comprehend Him. You can't do that with God. God is limitless. And so we must confess God to be an incomprehensible mystery. Even what God reveals about Himself in His Word remains unfathomable to us. We cannot grasp Revealed mysteries. God says in His Word that He's eternal. Do you know what eternity is? You have no idea what eternity is. We cannot even begin to think about existence without time. We can't begin to think about existing without the succession of change we call time. It even comes out in our language. We say things like, the moment before creation. Beloved, there were no moments before creation. Moment is time. There was no time before creation. Or we say things like eternity past, but there's no past in eternity because eternity has no time. We can't even grasp eternal. Or we'll say things like God is so big. But big is a descriptor of comparison and limit. God has no limits. He has no size. Big is too small a term for God. We are used to assuming comprehension because we used to bleed people and now we have penicillin. We used to send smoke signals and now we can send text messages. I text my friend in Africa and talk to him. It's amazing. We used to live our entire lives in a 15-mile radius and now some of us drive farther than that together with church or go to work. But none of that material progress means that we can grasp the limitless infinity of the God who is. We can know God truly and sufficiently for our life in Him and before Him. We can say what is real, but we will never comprehend fully what is incomprehensible. If you remember the old Far Side cartoon, there was one with a guy who sat on a cloud and the caption said simply, I wish I'd brought a magazine. And it was denigrating the eternal hope of heaven. The sad thing is a lot of Christians have bought that caricature about heaven in a Far Side cartoon. And it even fuels their indifference to worship of God in the church. But beloved, be assured that heaven won't be boring. It's impossible for heaven to be boring. It's impossible and it should be for worship to be boring now because we worship a God who's incomprehensible. God cannot be boring Because God has no boundaries. He never ends. We see that from David in Psalm 145, verses 1 to 3. It reads this, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Or you could translate that without fathom, without depth. We will bless your name forever and ever because there is no end to your greatness. We will never exhaust reason to praise God because God is inexhaustible. He has no ends, no boundaries. You never get to the end of God. We wonder at the unfathomable, incomprehensible God. And heaven will be the wonder of the unbounded glory of God being revealed to the saints forever without ever fear of exhaustion or running out. 
Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.7, In the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Christian, you will never in heaven get to the end of the grace of God in Christ and go, well, that's all there is to learn. Because it's immeasurable. It's it's God's incomprehensibility that inspires and motivates worship. It's even what was the motivation being given to Moses and Israel to bring them to serve and worship, I am the incomprehensible God at that mountain. And if God is incomprehensible, secondly, what we see in this passage is God is independent. He's independent. Moses' question in verse 13, asking, what shall I say or who shall we say is sending me? How would we answer that question? When we are asked who we are, we answer it by comparison. We answer it in reference to relationships. I would say, I'm Steve. I'm a human like other humans. I'm a male like other males. I'm I'm a Christian like other Christians. I'm an American like other Americans and, and, and so on. We define ourselves in relationship to other points of reference, others who share our class or our relationship. But God simply says, I am. He doesn't class himself with others. He doesn't say, I am that or I am like this. He doesn't describe himself in relationship to other principles. I am like this. Instead, I am. It's been said God is his own is. He's his own reason for being. He doesn't depend on or derive existence from anything outside of him. He is. And so in order to speak of him, Christians in the past, we take names like we have now, like being or essence. And we talk about God's divine being. Because how else do we describe the one who is? We take the to be verb and say, to, to be verb and say he is. But we have to be really clear, when we talk about God as a being, we don't mean it like other beings. Because we are beings because we come into be. But God just is. In fact, it's true to say God doesn't have existence. Because existence is something that is granted to those who come into existence. God just is. And He always has been. He is the only necessary being in all of existence. He is. So we speak of God's independence or self-existence. We call God's absolute independent self-existence aseity. And that just comes from two Latin words, a se, from himself. If you like the acai berry, the superfruit, that's how you remember aseity. It's a super attribute. Because it means God is God. He is from Himself. He depends on, derives from nothing else. Only Him. It's a super attribute, if you will. It's His absolute independence as God. We see this when Paul says in Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And I agree with one theologian who said you could summarize the entire Bible with that verse. Everything from, through, and to God. All things come from Him and through Him. God comes from nothing. He is independent. And that means, thirdly, we have to go a little deeper in our thinking. God is irreducible. God is irreducible. If God is revealing Himself as the I Am, 
And he's absolutely independent of all other causes, principles, or parts outside of or prior to him. There's nothing more fundamental than God from which he comes. That means God is the irreducible being of all existence. It all comes back to him. Or another way to say it, there's nothing more basic than God. And we call this God's simplicity. Now that may sound like a funny word because it doesn't mean God's easy to understand or that God is simple, but that He's not composed of parts. He's not made up of other principles. He does not put together in a division of things. And what this means when we consider what we call God's attributes, though they're really distinct in how we think about God and how He's revealed Himself, they're not distinctions in God Himself. That is, you can't divide God up like a pizza and say this slice over here is holiness, this slice is love, this slice is justice, and and down here is grace or mercy. God is not made up of holiness, love, and justice and mercy that were once put in a celestial pot, stirred for 20 minutes, and out popped God. God is. And so we distinguish His attributes because of the limitations of our finite abilities But God's not made up of these as components or principles that are outside of Him, out of which He's grown. If God wasn't simple, He wouldn't be the Creator of all things. If all things come from Him, then there can't be things before Him from which He comes. One Puritan, Lewis Bailey, said this, There are not in God many attributes, but one only, which is nothing but the divine essence itself. That is, when we talk about the various perfections of God or attributes of God, we are just coming at different ways to describe God. You can think of it like this, or like I like to think of it, because I really love good coffee. I don't know how many of you are barbarians and drink coffee out of those little Keurig things. Um, I prefer micro-roasted, finely ground, poured-over, fresh coffee. And when it's properly sourced and properly roasted, you can taste various notes in coffee. That's what you call them, tasting notes. And the proper way to taste coffee is actually to slurp it because you get the full coating of the coffee on your tongue and you're able to pull out the various tasting. It's true, you can ask somebody. You slurp your coffee is the proper way to drink it. And the bag I finished just this morning, actually, the roaster will put tasting notes on the bag so you know when you're choosing your bag of coffee what kind of flavors will be evoked. And so I looked at the bag before we left today, and it said citrus, dark chocolate, and cherry. Those are the tasting notes when you properly roast and brew and drink that coffee. You might have nutty or floral or other flavors that will be written on the bag. Now, those tasting notes are not added flavors to the flavored coffee is from the devil, people. We just need to to know that, get that out of the way. Tasting notes, they're not added flavors to coffee. They're They're the sensation the coffee evokes on your sense of taste, on your tongue. But but really you could say when someone asks, Well, what do you taste? Coffee. But in order to distinguish the kinds of coffee we have and the tastes that are sensed on us, we have to use these different sensations or else you would just be talking in a constant circle. Well, what do you taste coffee? Well, what does this bag of coffee taste like? Coffee? And this bag over here, coffee? Well, this is from Costa Rica. What does it taste like? Coffee? What about this one from Tanzania? What's it taste like? Coffee. Because all that is in coffee is coffee. 
And so in order to distinguish and understand coffee, we use tasting notes. And that is something of an analogy when we talk about the perfections or attributes of our irreducible God. What is God's love? It's God. What is His holiness? Well, it's God. There's no principle of holiness that God submits to, as we'll look at Sunday morning, Lord willing. God defines holiness. It's Him. What is justice? It's God. But in order for us as creatures and our finite minds to grasp, God has revealed Himself in these attributes and given names to His acts and His working and His willing in the world. So our conceptions of wonder and love and justice and holiness and goodness and mercy and power and wrath is simply God acting like God, because he's irreducible. Now, simplicity might sound like some highfalutin doctrine that only theological eggheads like myself and my friends need to think about. But, beloved, it's actually quite important when we think about some of the cultural trends that are around us that I'm sure many of us are concerned about. Our society, for example, will say, Love is love. But is that true? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. The independent, irreducible God is love. Love is not a prior principle that God submits to. Love exists because that's who God is. And so love is only true love to the extent that it conforms to God, the Creator of all. Without the very being of God, you see, we would be set adrift on a subjective sea of everyone defining love according to their own conceptions with no backdrop, no foundation, no basis in reality to define it truly. And so when we're talking maybe with our unbelieving friend or our neighbor or our family member we're concerned with and they've bought society's conception of love is love and they ask us, well, well, why does the Bible say that all physical relationships outside of marriage between a man and a woman is wrong? Why is that prohibition good, true, and beautiful? We might say it's in the Bible. But then what are they going to say? Yeah, but why is it in the Bible? Why is what's in the Bible good, true, and beautiful? And then we would say, well, because it comes from God. But yes, but who is God? God is. Period. And the answer to every question, even some of the most basic ones, even some of the most contentious ones in our culture, end right there. He is. And because He is, love is what He says it is. And love is true according to His Word. And He defines reality because He is the only irreducible being in all of reality. He's the one who's brought it into existence. Eventually, you can reduce everything, but it stops at God. He is. And fourthly, we want to consider here how this incomprehensible, independent, irreducible God is imminent. Imminent. Sometimes when we contemplate God according to these perfections, Christians ask and wonder, does this make God too distant, too far off, so incomprehensible? Is He even near us? Glance up at verse 11 of Exodus 3, and remember what Moses just asked. He asked in verse 11 this rhetorical question, 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That is to say, Moses is expressing to God, I am weak, I am dependent, I am uncertain, I am insufficient. Who am I? Moses, before this seemingly impossible task, God answers his question, Who am I with what? I am. I am who I am. That is when God's weak servants ask, Who am I? God answers, I am. I am sufficient. He is the final answer to every doubt, concern, and worry. He is. God gives then his personal name. And he says in verse 15, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. And that's how we render what we probably should pronounce Yahweh, the personal name of God, which is really just a play on the the verb, I am. That is, God gave the name to Moses and to Israel to always remember that when they call on His name, the God who's covenanting with them, to remember He is. He is independent, irreducible, and He is eminent. He's given His name and He's given His work. Notice He goes on to say in verse 15, He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we know them. And if we've been reading through our Bibles, through Genesis, we know the work of God to them. We know the covenants He's made with them. We know the promises and the power that He's shown to them as He's condescended to deliver and to redeem and to be with them. But it's been four centuries since God had been with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Pharaoh of Egypt that is now Pharaoh enslaving Israel doesn't even remember or know Joseph. So how do we know that the God who was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be with Moses and Israel? Because He is. Because He always is. God's eternal and unchanging being, beloved, is the foundation for every confidence you can have in His faithfulness. Because He never changes. Because He's outside the conception and time and the creation of change. Beloved, we know that God will be who He was because He is always. This is the point actually that Paul made to the pagans in Athens in Acts 17. In Acts 17 verse 25, the apostle declared, The God who made the world is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. And as one theologian rightly said, you could fill a volume of theology in that sentence as though he needed anything. God is independent, self-sufficient, separate, irreducible, before all and from whom all things exist. Our Creator and creation are infinitely distinct. He needs nothing. Nothing. Absolutely independent. But then what does Paul say next? Verse 26 and 27. And He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything that they should seek God. He is actually not far from each one of us. You see, it is God's absolute being that makes communion and communication with Him possible. Our relationship with God is possible Because He is. If God were not distinct from His creation, 
How could we ever have any genuine interaction with Him? He would be part of creation. He would be indistinguishable to us from the trees and the wind and the birds and the stars. He would be ever-changing. There would be no constancy in Him. He would be completely imprisoned and we would not know where to search or where to find the God who changes. And He would be completely impersonal, a force like the Star Wars idea. Or if God could be altered or changed by creation then relationship with us would be a risk to His being, it being corrupted or confused, so He would have to stay far away from creation for His own self-protection and His need. But because God is, we can seek Him, and He can speak to us, and He can sustain us by His Word. Because our Creator is separate from His creation, we can have communion with Him. We can communicate with Him. He can speak to us in His Word and we can answer Him in what we call prayer. And we can know God. And this God who is has spoken in many portions and in many ways, but in the last days He spoke in His Word made flesh. And when Jesus of Nazareth stood before His accusers, He declared Abraham rejoiced to see His day. And in John 8, the Jews jeered at him for saying this, saying, well, you've seen Abraham. And in John 8, 58, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant because they picked up stones to stone him. And it would have been blasphemy if it wasn't true. The God who is had assumed humanity and become a man to live righteously on our behalf. And then at the end of his ministry, before he went to the cross, the Lord Jesus declared to his disciples in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice that Jesus did not say, I have the way or I have the truth and life. No, I am life. I am truth. The all-sufficient, simple God as a man. The I am of the burning bush is the same as the Lord Jesus Christ. As God the Son assumed humanity. And it is by faith in the Lord Jesus that we are reconciled, forgiven, and we know the God who is. And we are reckoned righteous in Christ all by faith alone. But on what ground do we rest our faith? Paul, in Romans 4, 21-22, says of Abraham this, He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. We receive the promises of the gospel that all who have faith are reckoned righteous in the Lord Jesus, forgiven and reconciled to God. And we can rest in those promises because the one who spoke him them is never changing, always the same, constant. He is. And so we can be assured of the promises of the gospel. We can commune with God in prayer and praise. We can know that God is with us because God is. In World War II, in the heat of battle in Italy, an army chaplain came across a soldier who was dying of his wounds. And this is what the chaplain later recorded in his journal. 
He said, I knelt down and bent over the soldier, and he asked, Is God really like Jesus? And I assured him that he was. The only God there is, the God who has come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us, and poured out his love to us as our Savior. The God who is has spoken and come to us as God the Son and the Lord Jesus in humanity. And He came that we would be redeemed to worship Him and to wonder at the independent, irreducible, incomprehensible God who is. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Your Son and speaking to us in Your Word in a manner that we can glimpse something of the edge of Your garment, that we can behold Your glories in the face of Jesus, that we can know what is true of You, even though we will never exhaust what is true of You. Our Father, we pray that You would deepen our meditation and contemplation of Your glories. May we rejoice at who You are and who You are for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise You and we exalt You in Jesus' name. Amen.